All right, so as I said, we didn't quite finish chapter 2 last week, so let's turn to the end of chapter 2 in Daniel. Uh, we went over the dream and the interpretation of Daniel's dream. So there was a lot of information that we covered last week or tried to cover last week. And I encourage you to go home and to read through Daniel chapter 2 once or twice and make sure you have a firm grasp on this chapter because if we don't have an understanding of this chapter, the rest of the book of Daniel is going to be quite difficult. And if we have a, a good understanding, then I think this will guide the rest of our understanding, especially through chapters 7 and 8 and 11. Um, it'll be quite helpful. So before we move on to the the response that we see from Nebuchadnezzar, are there any thoughts or questions on Daniel chapter 2 and this dream and the interpretation of this dream? A couple of the points that I highlighted that were a little bit distinct and um, different from how other people view this chapter is that the, the iron and the clay, I believe very firmly that that's not yet happened. That's in the future. There are other people who will say, no, that's happened in the past. It's all over with. We've already seen the 10 kings that represent the toes and the 10 horns from chapter 7. Uh, I don't see any way where how that could actually be a, a reality. So I firmly believe that's in the future. Uh, we talked about the the rock representing Christ and his kingdom, which I believe also is in the future. That's a representation of his second coming, not his first coming, again, as others hold to. Um, yeah, no, no thoughts or questions on that. We're all clear on that going forward. All right. You kind of need to have later chapters to clarify. His second, not his first, right? Yep. Yeah, there's a, a break there, right? What one guy? Yeah. Yep. You can definitely get lost if you don't have this down. So, yeah, we've talked before about how Daniel is the backbone of prophecy, and Daniel chapter 2 is the backbone of Daniel. So, it's good to have that well understood before moving forward. All right, well, let's check out Nebuchadnezzar's response to the interpretation of this dream. I'll go ahead and read verse 46 of Daniel chapter 2. Again, right after Daniel told him everything. He said, this is trustworthy. This is true. Go ahead and take it to the bank, Nebi. And he says in verse 46, then Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. And so in verse 46, it seems like Nebuchadnezzar is actually worshiping Daniel. Um, I think that would be the literal straightforward reading of this. A uh, couple of things we can see here. This shows it. Nebuchadnezzar has great gratitude and appreciation, right? I think it's misplaced, obviously. He shouldn't be worshiping Daniel. But he's appreciative of the fact that Daniel has given him this dream, that he told him not only the interpretation, but the dream itself. Um, and this fact that 
uh, Nebuchadnezzar is worshiping Daniel, and the text doesn't explicitly say that Daniel um, refuses that worship, has caused a lot of people to uh, cast shade on Daniel, to say that he was doing something that he shouldn't have been doing. And I think that if we just read between the lines a little bit, we can surmise that Daniel, being a faithful man who multiple times throughout this book we see is willing to lay down his life to die for what he believes is right, even something so minuscule as what he's going to eat and drink. Um, I think that verse 47 really indicates that if Daniel did indeed receive worship, surely he put a stop to it immediately and credited God with everything that that had happened with the dream and the interpretation coming to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 47 says, the king answered Daniel. So it seems like, again, there was maybe some response from Daniel in between verses 46 and 47. And he said, surely you're God. So now his tune has changed a little bit, right? Now he's not bowing down and paying homage to Daniel. He's pointing to God. I'm sure that he's doing that as a result of Daniel, who's already told him before this, No man can give you an interpretation. I can't give you an interpretation, but my God can. So Nebuchadnezzar says, Surely your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. And so Nebuchadnezzar is putting the the praise now in the proper space and giving it to the Lord instead of to Daniel. Verse 48 says, Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So we see here that Daniel was given even more immense power and privilege. He was uh, lifted up and given this place of uh, power over other people. Just like we saw back in chapter 1. Again, I think that chapter 1 actually comes after chapter 2 that part of the reason that he's recognized so highly in chapter 1, this summary statement saying that after the three years of training, Daniel and his friends, they were seen as ten times better than all the other magicians and conjurers. Part of the reason for that is because of this, the interpretation of this dream. Yes? You know, reading verse 48, it kind of reminds me of uh, Joseph who was sold in the Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of similarities. To be second in command overall of Egypt. And now look at the, the status of Daniel. Yeah, and both as a result of these dreams that they interpreted by the power that God gave them, and they were both exemplary in their willingness to just cast away the, the credit and to say, this is all of God. They were, yeah, a lot of similarities between Joseph and Daniel. Joseph, who was sold into Egypt, he come from a basically an obscure prison background and came right up to second command of Egypt. Yeah. Yeah, he's a slave. He's a prisoner in another land. Absolutely. Good observation. All right, verse 49 says that Daniel made request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, while Daniel was at the king's court. And so here we see Daniel remember his friends. Remember, he went to them before when he had this need and said, hey guys, we got this problem. The king wants to kill us all, right? Not only us, he wants to kill all the magicians, all the other conjurers. We need to pray. 
that God would intervene and do something. And they were there joining him in the prayer, even though they're not there in the interpretation of the dream, standing before Nebuchadnezzar, getting all this praise. They weren't bowed before, given homage. But he goes and he says, hey, king, will you help my, my buddies out? And he does. Um, they are lifted up and given, again, these prominent positions. Um, over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. So Daniel uh, gets even more prominence than these other three. Um, Let's see. I just wanted to remind us that God is indeed in control over everything, over kings and nations, over individuals, over um, elections, over what time we wake up, whether or not we are late for school or church or work or whatever, uh, there's, as R.C. Sproul says, no maverick molecule in this universe, right? God is in control of every little thing, and we see that here in the fact that he's even in control over the dream of this king. Yeah, Jim. I just, I just think it's interesting to read that. You would almost think that uh, Nebuchadnezzar became a believer. But yet we'll see... Yeah, a, a few times you might be able to come to that conclusion, right? It didn't stick for some reason. No, it, it did not. And yeah, we'll address that even a little bit in chapter 3. Before we do that, I want to throw up this verse from Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. It says, Remember this, and be assured, recall it to your mind. You transgressors, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. That's a great verse to commit to memory, especially where we live. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. And he's just laid out this whole plan of what he intends to do uh, before Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was crying out. He's wondering, thinking, well, what's going to happen? God says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to use these Gentile nations for this period of time, the time of the Gentiles. You're going to be the the head of gold. There's going to be these subsequent empires, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And ultimately, God is going to crush all that. He's going to establish his own kingdom, and he will rule and reign for eternity. And he does that because he's God, right? All right. Thoughts or questions before we jump into chapter three? All right. Good. So, Chapter 3, I'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 3. We're still in Babylon, still dealing with King Nebuchadnezzar. There's been some period of time that's elapsed uh, before this. Some people want to place this at the destruction of the temple in 586, but we don't know for sure. Um, Actually, the, the Apocrypha says that explicitly, that this is in 586, 587, that Nebuchadnezzar wants to build this statue. I'm sure you guys are familiar with the story. As a result of a celebration of taking down Jerusalem, but we don't know for sure. The text doesn't say. But I'll go ahead and read. uh, Just realize there's been some time that's passed. So chapter 3, verse 1 says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. 
he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so here we see Nebuchadnezzar, he's not doing anything bad necessarily at this point. He's setting up a statue. It's completely normal so far as we've read in the text, right? And it's a huge statue. It says 60 cubits by 6 cubits. A cubit equals a foot and a half. So this was a 90-foot statue by 9 feet wide. That's pretty big, right? I was trying to get a point of reference, something around us, and see what it is. I have no idea. Do you know how tall this ceiling is, Jerry? You would know if anybody. Got to be 20-ish? Okay. Yeah, I, I'm not sure, and I didn't measure, but somewhere in there. I, I did check the, the temple that's just a few blocks away from us. Any guesses how tall the temple is? 100, 300 feet? Yeah, right in between. It's 208, so about half the size of the temple. And this was a while ago, and it seems like it was probably done pretty quickly, because we don't see Daniel mentioned here at all. So um, there's a chance that he was gone somewhere, and yeah, it seems like they may have got it erected quite, quite quickly. I was kind of impressed by the thought of that. So it was almost 100 feet tall? Yeah, it was 90 feet. Okay, 90. Yeah. 60 cubits is equal to 90 feet. It is pretty skinny. And in, in my mind, I was always thinking that this was a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and the text never says that, by the way. I think that I kind of surmise that because it's a statue of gold. And in the last chapter, he was told, you are the, the head of gold, right? And so it's definitely possible that it's a statue of him. And uh, not all art is to scale, especially in Babylonian art. There's just some wonky ways of portraying people. And so he could have done that. He could have been on a pedestal. It could have been like a 40-foot pedestal with a 50-foot Nebuchadnezzar statue on there. But we're not told what the statue was of. Um, in fact... What's that? Snake. Snake. Could have been, yeah. Um, in verses, we'll jump ahead a little bit just because we're there in our thought process. In verse 14 and 18, in both of those verses, um, he says, um, let me see. I think it's in those verses. You do not serve my gods or worship the golden image. And so there, his gods are distinguished from the image. Same thing with verse 18. Um, We are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image. And so I don't, it seems like there's a distinction between Nebuchadnezzar's God and the image. So I don't think that it's an image of one of his gods. And again, the text doesn't explicitly say that it's an image of Nebuchadnezzar, though I don't think that's a bad conclusion to come to. Um, we're just not told exactly what the, the image is. Um, we are told, however, that it is of this one material, this material of gold. And again, we have that uh, correlation back to chapter 2, where he is mentioned there as the head of gold. All right.
What's that? It kind of makes sense that uh, he had just destroyed the temple. He would feel like he had uh, defeated the God mm -hmm. of Daniel. Yeah. And so after giving, claimed him as God of gods, and now he defeated him, he would kind of feel like he's a God. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a, warped, a it's valid a sense, understanding. <laughs> yeah, we're just not sure. I can't say dogmatically because the text doesn't say. But yeah, I think that's a valid understanding. Again, I think understanding that it could have been a, an image of himself is a valid interpretation. We just have to realize we don't know with absolute certainty. And again, at this point, it's a little bit strange, a little bit uh, grandiose, but nothing concerning yet. We get to the concerning part in verses 4 through 7. I'll go ahead and pick up there. <clears throat> it says in verse 4, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given. So to all these people that he gathered together, all these rulers and, and leaders, right? Um, in fact, I should throw that up on the screen. Nebuchadnezzar gathered together these various leaders of Babylon. It wasn't just everybody in the nation, but he gathered together these groups of leaders, these prefects, these governors, these... Um, whatever, the judges and treasurers, these are the leaders within Babylon. And so he gathers them all together, uh, has this herald proclaimed to them, to you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Verse 6. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. <coughs> and so, um, again, we're not sure what this image is, but Nebuchadnezzar is making it clear that he's demanding worship be directed toward this statue. This has now become blatant idolatry, right? Before it was just a statue, nothing wrong with having a statue, but to command and demand that people bow down and worship, that's definitely crossing a line. <clears throat> and apparently, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a practice of throwing people into furnaces. It seems like a, a regular thing that he did because it's mentioned in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, verse 22, says, Because of them, a curse will be used by all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon, saying, May the Lord make you like Zedekiah and like Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. So Zedekiah and Ahab, uh, we've mentioned Zedekiah before, the guy who had his eyes plucked out. After that, he was taken away, held captive for a while, and then apparently roasted in the fire. So it's not just these three in Daniel chapter 3, it's a practice that we read about in Jeremiah 29, 22 as well. Um, one of the suggestions for this statue and what this statue is doing and the purpose of this statue is that it was Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to unify the many nations that he had gone out and, and annexed. Remember, he was a, a world empire. He was collecting all this land and all these peoples, and they all have different backgrounds, different gods, different um, practices, different cultures, and so it's 
suggested, again, not explicitly in the text, I think it's a good explanation though, that he's bringing them together and saying, this is going to be what unifies us. We're going to worship this statue. You go ahead and you worship whatever God you want. Uh, You worship your God. He was pretty eclectic in that regard. He was a a polytheist, believed in multiple gods. But it seems like this could have been a, a unifying factor to bring all these different cultures and backgrounds together so that they could be unified in in one sense under his headship. Um, yeah, Babylon was very polytheistic, and this was perhaps a, a unifying effort in bringing them together. Um, let's see. Yeah, once again, text doesn't explicitly say that. Just want to make that clear. Um, I do want to note, however, something that the text does explicitly say, and it says several times. Um, you'll know that whenever we see repetition in the Bible, it's for a good reason. There's importance, and uh, that should cause our ears to perk up when we see something repeated over and over again in the Bible. What phrase have you guys noticed just in those first seven verses? Go ahead and you know, check in your Bibles or in that little thing and what phrase do you see? Yeah, Kilo? It says Nebuchadnezzar the king. Nebuchadnezzar the king. Good. Yeah, he's uh, called the king. Even Daniel called him the king of kings, right? I was thinking something else, though. But yeah, you're right. Let's see. One, two, three, four. At least five times right there. Six times it says Nebuchadnezzar the king. And it continues to say that throughout the rest of our passage. What's that? Fall down and worship the image. Yes, he's said that too. And uh, did you have something else, or was that what you were going to say? No, no, I had something else, but I'll let you finish your thought. Oh, uh, that's okay. Yes, that's also repeated in there, but something else I was looking for. Just the list of all the people who were there, they repeated. Uh, yeah. Same draft, the prefects, governors, <laughs> treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all the officials. Yeah. And he does that with the, the instruments too, right? There's a, a lot of repetition in this chapter. Um, not it, This chapter probably wouldn't do that well in like a, an English class in, in college or something. Um, but it's divinely inspired. It's the word of God. The purpose isn't to uh, do well on an English test, right? Well, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, we see that a lot. And we'll even see that from Daniel in chapter 6. That's directed toward uh, Darius. But yeah, it's a a common greeting for sure. Well, there's a ton of repetition here. And I should have been more specific in my question. Because what I was looking for, uh, Jerry was right along the the lines of where my thinking was. This uh, image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. He had taken and, and set up this image. In fact, we see that six times, this phrase, set up, uh, just in these first seven verses. And then three more times in the rest of the chapter, it talks about Nebuchadnezzar setting up this statue. Uh, why, why do you suppose that's significant? That Daniel thought, well, I need to repeat that six times in these seven chapters. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, set up this statue. something new. Yeah, it wasn't around before, right? It had to be established. Yes? That's what I was going to say, to emphasize that he is establishing this. Yeah. And 
I think the fact that he had to construct this, he had to fashion this statue, right? I think that's of utmost importance. Uh, this image, it's, it was an image of something. Yeah, for sure. I wonder what. Absolutely. And we, we can't speculate, but that's about all we can do is speculate. Let's go ahead and turn together to Isaiah 44. Keep your place in Daniel. And turn to Isaiah chapter 44. I'm going to go ahead and start reading in verse 9. And this is right in the middle of the, the trial of the false gods, the trial of the idols that Isaiah is writing about in Isaiah chapter 40 to 48. He's just calling out these false idols. He's calling them to task and saying, this is the same chapter that I read for, from before where it says that I am God and there is no other. There's no one like me. There's no one besides me. I'm the first. I'm the last. This section is a, a brilliant section where God's saying, I am set apart. You guys, all these other gods, they're nothing. So let's go ahead and start in Isaiah 44, verse 9. It says, Those who fashion a graven image are all, are all of them futile. Now realize this is talking not about the graven images themselves right now, but it's talking about those who graft these uh, graven images. Graft? That's not the right word, is it? Graft? Okay. Graven. <laughs> it's got me mixed up. So yeah, those who make these graven images, that's who it's talking about, are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who is... Uh, or who has rather fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit. Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. For the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. So again, this is speaking of these craftsmen. There's nothing good about them. They're futile. They all need to be put to shame. Verse 12 says, The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. So this man first has to make his tools, right? Before he can go and make his idol. He has to sit down and craft his tools, which he does with his other tools, um, which... He does with his, his strong arm, which he has nothing to, to boast about in having a strong arm, right? His strong arm was given to him. His mind that he uses to craft these tools, which he uses to craft these other tools, which he uses to craft these idols, that was given to him, right? He's just taking what has already been given to him and, and making something else. And then at the, the end of verse 12, it says that he also gets hungry. His strength fails he drinks no water, he becomes weary. So he is dependent, he is needy, he is weak. Verse 13 says, Another, a, a different man, shapes wood. He extends a measuring line, he outlines it with red chalk, so he's very calculated and measured and intentional in making this. He works it with planes and outlines it with the compass. He makes it like the form of a man, so taking all this meticulous effort to make this idol like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Verse 14, Surely he cuts cedars for himself, cedars that he himself did not uh, create, right? It takes a cypress or an oak 
and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. But get this, he plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. All he does, just like the parable that we read in Mark 4, he just puts the seed in the ground and how it grows, he does not know, right? He himself does not know. It's the rain given by God that makes this tree to grow that he takes and cuts up and makes into an idol. Verse 15, then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and, him, and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god. His graven image, he falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. And Isaiah is just pointing out how utterly absurd this is. This is foolishness. This man is taking a tree, cutting it down. He's using half of it just to burn, to, to warm himself, to cook food on. The other half he takes and carefully, meticulously shapes and crafts into an image, puts it in his house, and he thinks, I'm going to bow down, I'm going to pray to this tree that the other half of which I just burned. I'm going to worship it. I'm going to thank it for everything I've been given, even though I'm the one who made it. Uh, This is just utterly stupid, right? And it's obvious that this is foolishness. But verses 18 through 20 will explain to us that the person who's in the midst of this idolatry, they're completely blind to it. They're ignorant of the fact. It says in verse 18, they do not know, nor do they understand for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge of understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire, and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before the block, a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? And so, again, he's just in absolute ignorance of the stupidity of what he's doing. He's making an idol, bowing down and acting like somehow that idol has made him and and worshipped him and and blessed him. And this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar has been doing. It's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is calling all these leaders within his nation to do. Um, And it repeats again six times in those seven verses. Nebuchadnezzar has set up this statue. He has taken and, and made and crafted this image. And yeah, it's a big image. It's a Uh, expensive image, right? Made out of gold, probably not pure gold, probably made out of wood and just uh, has gold on the outside, but still it's uh, an impressive image, I'm sure. But he set it up. He just made it. It's crafted. And yet God, the true God, God of Israel, Yahweh, he didn't have to be set up by anybody, right? He didn't have to be made or crafted by anybody. He has what theologians call aseity. He has life within himself. He has nobody that he goes to for counsel. He doesn't have a a mom or a dad, nobody who made him, nobody who came before him. He is the first and the last. He is completely set apart, not set up, right? Let me read to you this quote from Reynolds Showers. He says that through setting up this image of gold, the king was saying, 
I don't care what the God of heaven has said back in chapter 2 in this dream. My kingdom of Babylon will not fall to another Gentile kingdom. It will rule throughout the times of the Gentiles. I think this understanding kind of explains perhaps why Nebuchadnezzar took and, and set up this image uh, because he, he wants to continue. He wants to be king. And this as well may be in conjunction with the destruction of Jerusalem. All right, thoughts or questions at this point? Yes, Andy. So, um, when we lived in Arizona in uh, 2000, 2001, we went to a ethnic Chinese Baptist church. Hmm. And the pastor, Pastor Choi, came from mainland China. And uh, he had met other refugees escaping from China, and one of them had a, a little Buddha hmm. he kept in his pocket. And uh, he said to him, he's like, what's that? He's like, well, you know, Buddha got me out of China in the United <laughs> States. And he laughed and he said, um, so you're carrying your God with you? Yes. Yeah. He's like, my God got me out of China. Yeah. He got me to the United States. And he is the author of all. He, you know. Yeah. In other words, that idolatry, we don't, we see it in different ways here in the United States, but it's still very much in existence. Absolutely. India, China, uh, Asia, yeah. even the Middle East with Islam. They have yeah. their own ideas. And it is good and right for us to, to call it out and to point it out. No, Buddha didn't get you out of China. You got Buddha out of China, right? You, you carried your God out of China. Yeah. How small of a God, how weak of a God is that? You have to pick him up and carry him. Yeah. Our, our God is different, right? Our God is unique and set apart. I'm thankful for that. All right, let's go ahead and read verses 8 through 12. It says in verse 8, for this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, that same phrase Kilo pointed out, O king, live forever. That other phrase that somebody else pointed out. You, O king, have made a decree, and every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. And so we see here that the Chaldeans are calling out the Jews, and they could well have been doing this just based out of jealousy. Remember, these Jews, these captives, these slaves from a different country have been brought in. They've been elevated to this position of power over these Chaldeans who live there. They're natives. And uh, perhaps that's why they're turning and saying, hey, look at these, these leaders that you put into place, King Nebuchadnezzar. These are supposed to be leaders. They're supposed to be honorable in what they're doing. They're supposed to be exemplary in the way that they lead, and they're not obeying you. They're being disobedient, in fact, and you should have greater expectations of them, and yet they are not heeding your command. 
we also see uh, in verse 12 that it uses their Babylonian names, right? We've talked about that before, how their Jewish names that, which honor and praise the God of Judaism, the, the Jewish true God of Israel, right? Um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those names aren't being used here. It's these other names which praise the Babylonian gods which are used. And they're being used by a Babylonian. It's a Babylonian who's using their name, praising their, their fake gods. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 13. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all the music, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. There's a lot there, right? A lot going on. Uh, We see, first of all, Nebuchadnezzar, he responds emotionally, right? He gets angry and he is driven by pride. Wait, these these people aren't listening to me? These, again, people that I I brought out of this country so kindly, I, I brought them here to my nice Babylon. Not only that, I've lifted them up and given them this privileged position of power and now they are dishonoring me by not listening to my command to bow down to this statue and he essentially throws out this challenge to to any god but specifically to Yahweh because he's talking to the Jews he knows who their god is right he says what god is there who can rescue you out of my hand and he's he's throwing down the gauntlet right and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they're willing to, to bank on God and to, to put their faith and their trust in Him. These verses, verse 17 and 18, are a couple of the, the greatest verses that we have in our Bible. Uh, just a tremendous display and testimony of their trust and their faith in God, that God is going to be able to, to save them. Um, it says, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to save us. He, he can do it. He has the power. He has the strength to do it. But it, not only can he save us, it goes on and says um, that he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So they thought that he was able. They thought that he was willing to take on this challenge that Nebuchadnezzar had given, that he had uh, thrown down this gauntlet. Uh, however, they do so without being presumptuous of God. They say in verse 18, even if he does not. So they're not kind of holding God to the standard. They're not going to be like Nebuchadnezzar and put God to the test. They're saying, no, my God is able, and he's going to answer your, your test. But even if he doesn't, that's not 
the, the end of us. We still, we're going to put our faith and our trust in God. And we're going to die for him. We're never going to bow down to your statue. We're never going to worship your gods. That is idolatry. That's an abomination to the, the Lord. And we refuse to do it. That's just awesome stuff there. That's so much boldness to know God is able. He's going to do it. And if he doesn't, that's the, the greatest part, I think, of that verse. And even if he doesn't. Um, because a lot of people in this prosperity gospel movement, they have a, a different understanding of that. And they will put God to the test. And they'll say, oh, well, just name it and claim it, right? We have all these promises in Scripture, which they'll take out of context. They're not really promises. And they'll say that we have to proclaim them to God, and then he somehow owes it to us to, to show up, to respond, to, to give to us these uh, physical things or health or whatever. God isn't a magic genie. And these three Jewish men, these faithful Jewish men, they knew that. They were firmly aware of that. And so they were, let's see, they were confident in God's ability and his willingness to answer Nebuchadnezzar's challenge, yet they didn't presume upon the Lord to save them. They didn't have the mindset of the prosperity gospel preachers. Rather, they had the mindset of Jesus who said, uh, not your will, or not my will, but your will be done, right? That was their understanding, their mindset, as they were being threatened to be thrown in the fire, which will ultimately happen. Um, yep, I'll go ahead and skip my notes there. Any other thoughts or questions? Can you go back so I can finish writing that last? Yeah, I'll go back for a moment. Thank you. Yep, you're good. Saying this is going to prove that God is. Nope. I mean, there's no, no pressure there. So many times I hear people, well, God, if you exist, if your God exists, do this or do that. Yep. You know, he, doesn't, he doesn't answer our beck and call. I mean, sometimes he does, but he doesn't do it at our command. Yeah, he's not beholden to us, right? Because, again, he has a satiety, <laughs> he's not a, a God who was set up. And Jesus recognized that when he was being tempted in Matthew 4. He says, no, I'm not going to put my, my Lord, the God, to the test. Yeah, Logan. Yeah, um, so do we know how long it was in like, last chapter? And then... No, we don't. Like I said, the, um, there's speculation that it was at the destruction of Jerusalem, at the destruction of the temple in 586, which uh, chapter 2 was in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And so that would have been in 604. And so, but that's, that's speculative. But there was some time passed, for sure. And Daniel and all of his homies, they were already in positions of power by this point. Yeah, it definitely shows a, a true faith versus a, a fake faith. Yeah. Sees the power of God, he, he wants to have faith, but it's, it's more of a fleshly desire, I feel. Um, yeah, James says, I, I show you my faith by my works, yeah. right? And that's what they're doing. They're, they're willing to go on the fire for their faith. Where was Daniel? Uh, that's a good question. It doesn't mention Daniel at all. So Daniel, again, he was in a, a higher position. He was over these guys. And so perhaps he wasn't put to the same kind of test that they were put to. Remember, it was all the leaders that were brought together and said, you need to bow down to the statue, probably for purpose of unity, to bring this divided, fractured nation together. 
And so Nebuchadnezzar, wanting all of his leaders to be on the same page, to have some kind of uniting force between them, were told and given this test, you need to do this. So Daniel might have been in such a high power position that he wasn't subjected to that kind of test. Or maybe he was off somewhere else in the empire, in the kingdom, on some kind of other uh, assignment or something. But we're not told. There, there are a lot of things that we're not told explicitly in this chapter, and we can speculate and surmise, but that's, that's all we can do. All right, well, let's move on. So, verses 19 through 23, we already read back in 13 that Nebuchadnezzar was enraged and uh, angry is how the verse describes him there. Verse 19 steps it up even further. It says that Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So his face was now distorted in rage. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were his in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and all their other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. And so we see here that Nebuchadnezzar's anger, his rage, overtook his rationality as he ordered the furnace to be turned up, not turned down, right? If he really wanted to make them suffer, he would turn the furnace down and prolong their suffering. He turned it up where they would be uh, incinerated even quicker. And... In doing so, he ended up killing his own men. Um, it talks about his their their clothes being left on these clothes, which were very flammable, right? And that's likely what caught fire and caught Nebuchadnezzar's men on fire. It was apparently standard practice to uh, remove this clothing beforehand. Reynolds Showers again has this quote, and he says, "The Babylonian furnaces were like." modern lime kilns with an opening at the top through which material could be dumped and a large opening at the bottom for withdrawing burned substances. So they were thrown into this big kiln-like device with their clothes on. Verse 22 said that there was a, a sense of urgency, so they were trying to hurry, and yet Nebuchadnezzar was still sticking around. You would think a man with such great power and oversight would just... Uh, delegate and have somebody else do that, but it it wasn't so urgent that he didn't want to be there. He didn't want to witness and see that. So let's go ahead and keep reading verses 24 to 27. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste, and he said to his high officials, Was it not three men who we cast into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king, He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the most high God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. 
the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Again, how, how twisted and, and uh, just messed up that he wanted to sit around and personally watch these men be burned in this fire. This practice that seemed to be common to him, uh, instead of just taking off, he stuck around so he could see them be burned up. And again, just reflective of his pride and the vengeance that he wants to take out on these people for not bowing down and worshiping the statue that he, the great king Nebuchadnezzar, told them they needed to bow down and worship. Uh, Edward Young here kind of summarizes five things that startled Nebuchadnezzar. He says the first was that there were four persons instead of three in the furnace. The second thing was that not one of the persons was bound. Third, all four persons were walking around in the fire None was lying down. Fourth, all four persons were unhurt. And fifth, the fourth person looked like one of the, like a son of the gods. And so he was just astounded. He was taken back, startled by the whole uh, course of events. Everything that was going on was not happening like he had planned that it would happen. It wasn't going as he had orchestrated the whole situation. And when we see here, there's um, this this understanding that the, there's these four men in this furnace, and the understanding, the very common understanding, is that that fourth man is Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, standing with them in the midst of the fire. Um, we have to know, and I have to point this out to you, that it was Nebuchadnezzar who said that it appears like a son of the gods, this fourth man. And in verse 28, it, he again says, um, let me see, blessed is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel. And the Aramaic word translated angel can also be used of deity. But again, it was Nebuchadnezzar who was the source of this. We're taking his word for it. He looks like one of the gods or a son of the gods or an angel. And so many believe the fourth person in the furnace to be the pre-incarnate Christ, though this isn't explicitly clear. The, the text doesn't say that. Um, I think, again, it's a, a viable interpretation, but it is definitely going beyond the text. It could very well just be an angel. Um, but whatever the case, whoever it is, they protected the three men miraculously, right? There was no damage whatsoever to the men. They didn't even smell like smoke. God uh, answered that challenge that Nebuchadnezzar gave to him back in verse 16. Um, maybe not 16. Wherever it was. Um, God answered that, that challenge and he protected these men, his people. We see that in, again, verse 27, not a hair on their head was singed. They're completely protected. Verse 28 says that Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, it seems like maybe he's coming around, right? He's accepted Jesus into his heart, right? Terminology that I do not like. Um, (laughs) But it 
seems like he's saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servant, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except for their own god. Now this is the the second time that it seems like King Nebuchadnezzar has come around and uh, embraced the the Jewish God as superior, right? He's already back in 247 acknowledged the superiority of God. He says, surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings to Daniel when he gives this uh, explanation of the dream. Back in chapter 1, he recognized that the four men, they were ten times better than all of his wise men, right? And so he's already made acknowledgement of God. Um, back in 26 of chapter 3, it says that uh, he recognized that they were servants of the Most High God. That's a, a phrase that you might want to underline or circle or highlight or somehow in, in your Bibles or in your ESV study books, because we'll see that several times throughout uh, the, the book of Daniel. Thirteen times, in fact. But seven of the times that we see that phrase, high God or most high God, it's Nebuchadnezzar speaking of God, which is interesting. And he says again here in verse 28, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's, that's pretty cool that he's doing that and acknowledging that. I'm sure that you guys would love to hear, blessed be the God of, of Jerry, blessed be the God of, of Andy or of uh, Logan or, or whoever. That's a, a cool thing to hear. And it's amazing that we get to represent God in that way um, and, and introduce him to a, a lost and dying world. Uh, let me read you this quote from Dwight Pentecost. He says, up until then, Nebuchadnezzar had believed that his Babylonian gods were superior to Yahweh though he had once acknowledged the greatness of Yahweh in 247. After all, he had taken captives from Judah and vessels from the Jews' temple. So of course he would think that he's superior and that his gods are superior to the Jewish God because he's gone in and he conquered them seemingly without much difficulty at all. Um, Yet, this acknowledgement, as we've already talked about, is fickle. Um, It's not lasting and that's because there's a vast difference in between acknowledging God as my God and acknowledging God as, and blessing God as another person's God. He had not embraced God in a, a personal way. He was shocked by the fact that these men were spared from his wrath, but he wasn't moved to repentance. He was impressed that God had showed up, that he had answered that challenge. However, he wasn't submissive to this God. He wasn't uh, bowing down and recognizing this God as his Lord, even though he uses that, that phrase, that terminology. Yeah, he's, he's king of kings, he's lord of lords. Uh, we'll see, especially in the next chapter, that that's not exactly the case. Let's go ahead and wrap up this chapter 29 and 30. He says, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar now takes it a, a step further, and he legislates against uh, legitimate blasphemy of the God of Israel. 
And once again, he elevates these three men to uh, power of prominence and privilege. I want to read to you this final quote from Jerry Bridges. He says, well, that's kind of small, isn't it? He says, we make plans, but those plans can succeed only when they are consistent with God's purpose. No plan can succeed against him. No one can straighten what he has made crooked or make crooked what he has made straight. No emperor, king, supervisor, teacher, or coach can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not first decreed to either make it happen or to permit it to happen. The insignificant sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his will. The mighty Roman Empire cannot crucify Jesus Christ unless the power is given to them by God. It is God who gives power and permission for any and everything that takes place. And we see that so clearly with Nebuchadnezzar. Not just in this chapter, but in previous chapters and in later chapters as well. Any thoughts or questions before we close out? Could what? Could have been Michael the Archangel? Uh, it's possible, but I don't know. Because Michael's the one that helped uh, Daniel, right? In chapter 12, yeah, we'll read about... Yeah. No, not chapter 12. In chapter 10. Um, but, yeah, again, that's all speculative. It's It's hard to say. I think there there is validity to thinking that that's a, a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that God was patient with Nebuchadnezzar in 2.47. He said, your God is a God of gods, mm-hmm. and the Lord of lords. Yeah. Here he's calling him the most high God, but he's still not bowing to God's salvation with him. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, he's a, a slow learner, isn't he? He seems to be learning a little bit here and there and then takes a couple steps back. He reminds me a lot of Donald Trump. So, <laughs> um, yep. Yes. There is a quote scientific explanation for how the asbestos Jews survived this. But uh, the explanation, it, it all has to do with the extra fuel and everything. And it, but it falls short of the total description of what happened. How they didn't smell or weren't even seeing the hair. Yeah. yeah. Pretty hard. Yeah, that's what's clearly miraculous. Yeah, I can't explain any of that. Yep. And uh, actually, they couldn't have really survived because their explanation is that they were able to so much fuel that they would just fell into where it was just gases, not flame. But they were suffocating. Yeah, it's, so, I mean, they're, they're, that starts with a, a presupposition that the Bible's not trustworthy. <laughs> it's just, it's a <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Plain and simple, God. <laughs> All right.